Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man. Here in the second half of the book, I'm honestly at a bit of a loss to sort of categorize and explain what's all going on here. Like, if anything, all of the worries that I had going into our discussion of the short story collection in the first half of this book are just magnified here. Um, the themes are even less transparent than they were in the first half. There's more bleeding over between the kind of categories that I had tentatively assigned last time. Um, there's very little that has helped me to sort of organize these and, and give us a cogent way to talk about them, but here we are, so we're going to talk about them anyway. Um, I should also stress that as much as, you know, I do love this short story collection, and I do think that there's not a bad one in the lot, with the possible exception of The Other Foot, which is well written, even if it's sort of poorly motivated, um, I am more connected to the first half than I am to the back half. Like, among the my favorite stories in this collection, like, I would always point to The Velt, I would always point to The Long Rain, um, but not so much a lot of these in the back half. Like, some of these I definitely do remember, The Rocket especially, I'm, I'm very fond of. Um, the City, I've said over and over again, is, is one of my favorites for reasons that I'm not sure I fully understand. Um, but overall, like, a lot of these are comparatively unmemorable, uh, at least compared to the first half. Uh, but we will see a lot of Bradbury's overarching themes. If anything, the second half of this book tends to emphasize more the themes that we saw elsewhere, outside of this book, rather than having their own sort of internal themes. Um, so take, for example, our, our first story in, in the back half of the collection, uh, The Exiles. This is very obviously part of a sort of thematic trilogy, um, starting with Usher 2, including Fahrenheit 451 itself, and then sort of concluding here. Um, the Exiles is another one of Bradbury's stories celebrating literature and emphasizing the, the danger that it is in. Um, but it is also kind of the most fanciful of the bunch. Um, like, Usher, again, I had my criticisms for Usher, too. I, I thought it was, you know, trafficking and, and you know, stories that were considerably better than its own and, and pointed to the dangers of doing that. Um, but The Exiles is, if anything, even more sort of off the wall and strange. Um, the premise here is that apparently a rocket with humans is coming to Mars for the first time in many, many years, um, and they are being stalled specifically by all of the creators of fictional and fantastic worlds that have since been banned by planet Earth and its government. So, like, we literally have Edgar Allan Poe and Ambrose Bierce and the City of Oz and all of these people hanging around on Mars using their apparently supernatural abilities to, like, try and stave off the arrival of the humans. So, like, the captain keeps seeing these, like, dark visions of, like, snakes biting at him, or, you know, people are, are sort of losing their minds, or, or, like, actually just dying in their tracks, presumably from fright. Um, as all of these, you know, great writers and concoctors of especially horrific fantasy are, are trying to, like, stop them from arriving. Um... And the metaphysics of this are just baffling. Like, we're, we're sort of introduced to some, some basic rules. Like, if they arrive, then they'll probably end up forcing, you know, Poe and company to, to, like, hide out in the hills and eventually leave and go to some further planet, and then the whole cycle will repeat again. Um, 
But also sort of crucial to the discussion here is, like, the crew of this ship are carrying the last known copies of all of these fantastic works on the ship with them. Like, they have Poe's collected works, they have, you know, Frank Baum's The, the Wonderful City of Oz. Like, we're, we're getting a lot of these books with us, and it is very much sort of inexplicably the case that the, these books are on the ship, um, and they are ceremonially burned upon their arrival, at which point all of these fantastic creators and creations are killed. Um, you know, all of the, the writers who created these fantastic worlds just disappear once the last remaining texts are, are, are destroyed. Um, and there's something really weird about all of this. Like, trying to parse the rules is, is kind of beyond our, our scope here. It's, it's not something I'm terribly interested in. Again, it's fanciful, and it's clear that Bradbury doesn't have a ter terribly consistent, you know, idea in mind of, of how all this works. Um, but what is clear is, again, Bradbury's love for these works and his antagonism to those who would censor and, and sort of repress them. Um... And I mean, honestly, for all that we talked about this in, in Fahrenheit 451, um, it, it's kind of even more disturbing here, the idea that, you know, not only are we destroying these ideas, destroying these stories, but, like, there seems to be some sort of clear antagonism here and in Usher 2 against fantastic literature in general. Um, like, the captain and the crew are constantly saying that this is purely rational and that they, you know, they have been psychologically evaluated, and they, they recognize that all of these are hallucinations, um, and that there is something wrong with indulging in fantasy, with indulging in, in horror, especially. Um, and I honestly have some questions about this, like, from a historical, cultural standpoint. Uh, because, honestly, this is sort of a gap in my knowledge, especially considering how much I love Bradbury and how much this is a really important idea and a really important theme to him. Uh, my understanding was that fanciful stories were actually kind of really popular at this particular point in time. Like, the 50s, as much as, you know, as much as we know 50s culture to be emphasizing conformity in post-war America and, the, and this sort of, like, conformity in one's religion, conformity in one's behavior, conformity in one's dress, you know, we're talking about all of those Levittown houses with their white picket fences and all these people um, getting sort of social approbation for stepping out of line. Um, as much as that's the case, this is also, like, some of the greatest writing in science fiction and fantasy, some of the, the you know, highlights of comic bookdom with its, you know, both on the side of, like, superhero comics, but also on the side of, like, horror and, you know, detective comics. You know, I identify this with some of the greatest fantastic literature that the world has ever seen. Like, it's certainly not on par with what the 60s will produce and the likes of Tolkien and... and um, and Frank Herbert, um, but, you know, this is the golden age of science fiction. Like, this is when Bradbury is, is at his peak. This is when, you know, writers like Heinlein and Asimov are sort of trailing off and, and you know, their works are being celebrated. Um, and this is when new writers like Cordwainer Smith and Alfred Bester are, are really getting underway. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that these works were really in any danger. Um, 
If anything, I suspect that Bradbury is kind of overstating his case here, jumping at shadows. You know, it's probably true that some PTA somewhere did in fact try and ban Edgar Allan Poe's works from some school curriculum, um, but that doesn't take, it doesn't necessarily represent some big overarching trend, I don't think. Um, so on the one hand, you know, I totally agree, like I am 100% with Bradbury insofar as I think that there should be a space for this kind of writing and this kind of literature, um, and that we shouldn't be, you know, scared of our children getting into horror fiction or anything like that, um, especially Bradbury's own brand of kind of like spook horror instead of real, like, psychological horror or something. Um, but I'm also just not sure if there's a real danger here. I feel like this is unnecessary. Um, like, I've talked at length about the dangers that Bradbury identifies in Fahrenheit 451 and how real they are to me, how real they are today, um, how much I, I ally myself with his thinking as far as that goes. Um, but when it comes to the actual, like, his, his love of spooky literature and in the likes of Usher and in the likes of, of the exiles here, I mean, I don't see it. Like, I remember growing up on the stories of Edgar Allan Poe. They were gladly handed to me by my teachers. At no point did anyone stop and be like, are we sure we're supposed to let him read this? Like, it, it, are we comfortable with this kid reading, you know, Poe or Douglas Adams or Ray Bradbury or, you know, any of these writers that I was getting into? Um, nobody stopped me. Nobody, like, if anything, they were encouraging me. Like, Poe was a fixture of my education. Um, I read him when I was, you know, in grade school, and I read him again when I was in high school, and I was reading him again when I was in college. Like, I love Poe. You're not going to get any any complaints uh, on that front from me. Like, as much as I have grown to be more wary of him, especially, you know, now that we're sort of uncovering his, his racist tendencies and, and uh, asking questions about whether or not many of his themes are, are explicitly xenophobic, you're not going to be able to, like, convince me that something like the Cask of Amontillado or the Mask of the Red Death or the Telltale Heart aren't stone-cold classics. Um, you know, some of the greatest horror fiction ever written. Um, it's just not going to happen. Like, it's too good and... in you know, it, it's too hard to turn it into something that is, like, actually immoral. Um, if anything, something like The Mask of the Red Death is emphasizing the, the problems with xenophobia, even if the murders of the Rue Morgue might be condoning it more than we, we tend to think is appropriate here in the 21st century. Um, so, yeah, sign me up for Team Poe, sign me up for Team Bradbury, but I'm not sure I'm seeing the fight here. Um, like, it's a fun story to read, as weird as it is, as, as out there as it is, but it's, it's also kind of, I think, the worst of the three stories about censorship that we've encountered so far. Like, if Fahrenheit 451 is Bradbury's definitive statement on, you know, censorship and on the state of the contemporary American mind here in the 1950s, and if Usher is sort of his playful, you know, homage to the likes of Poe and Bierce and Frank Baum and so on, then this one seems kind of unnecessary. Still fun, but really kind of dumb and not 
you know, a fitting, a fitting end to the, to this kind of discussion. Um, which I'm sure it isn't. Like, I'm sure I just haven't encountered Bradbury's other story on, stories on the subject. I would honestly be shocked if we don't end up finding, you know, more later when we encounter either of our other readings for, for the series or, you know, just in my own studies as I'm reading some of the short stories that I haven't read before. You know, I'd be shocked if Bradbury leaves this theme completely untouched. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe by the 60s and 70s, Bradbury thought the danger had passed. Um, I guess that remains to be seen. Um, but moving on, since again, I don't think The Exiles is terribly worth talking about. Um, we do encounter another story, No Particular Night or Morning, which very much smacks of the same sort of inevitability uh, theming and, and structure that we saw in the likes of Kaleidoscope or The Long Rain. Um, and this, too, ties to the city, um, that story that I'm constantly talking about and will be really, really uh, anticlimactic when I finally actually discuss it in a few minutes. Um, no Particular Night or Morning is, like, I think it's most closely aligned with kaleidoscope insofar as we once again have um, a crew on a rocket stranded in the middle of space um, and a very deep psychological examination of what's happening to the people now that they're this isolated, this far away from home. Um, specifically, we're looking at the story of this random dude, um, Hitchcock, and Hitchcock is getting super philosophical. Like, apparently this is a thing that happens. Like, everybody who's cooped up on a spaceship like this is inclined to philosophy at some point. But Hitchcock goes full solipsist here. Like, he starts by saying, you know, I, I don't believe in something unless I see it directly in front of me. Like, I, I don't believe in the Earth because I don't see the Earth. My memory of the Earth is effectively a lie. Um, but by the end of this story, he's gone so far as to say that, like, he doesn't believe that the other member of the members of the crew exist unless he sees them right before him. Like, they're dead, and now they've resurrected because they've come upstairs or something. Um, and finally, Hitchcock just jettisons him out into space, um, where there is nothing, no particular night or morning. There is no such thing as day. There is no such thing as the sun. There are only the stars before him. He doesn't even believe in his own hands or his own feet. Um... And I'm honestly not sure what to make of this one either. Like, what I'm inclined to think about here is Wittgenstein. And I wonder if Bradbury hasn't encountered the thought of Wittgenstein in, in some sense when writing this story. Like, this this definitely sounds like the sort of short story that I would write after encountering a, philosoph encountering a philosopher for the first time and getting really grumpy about it. And this smacks so much of Wittgenstein's uncertainty that I wouldn't be surprised if this is, you know, Bradbury kind of overreacting to that philosophy. Um, I should emphasize, as much as Wittgenstein's uncertainty does isolate a lot of these same ideas, as much as it is sort of asking us, you know, how do we say that we know that we have feet and arms? How do we say that we know that there are people who aren't right there in front of us? And for that matter, how do we say that we know that our senses are reliable? You know, Wittgenstein's not engaged in trying to, like, prove to us that none of these things exist and all, hum all you know, human activity is absurd. Um, this is the second phase of Wittgenstein's career. This is the, the philosophical investigations half of Wittgenstein's career after the Tractatus. Um, he's playing games, in short. He's entertaining us with these questions. 
He is asking them for the sake not of like disproving that these things exist, but sort of just probing, questioning. Why do we believe these things? What is the philosophical basis for our understanding? And not actually antagonizing at all. Um, and one of the things that I should emphasize here is that that's not necessarily how Wittgenstein is, in fact, read, either in Bradbury's day or in ours. Um, as, you know, John Gardner emphasizes in On Moral Fiction, you know, a lot of writers sort of only passing familiar with Wittgenstein's thought are adopting this as, you know, being a, an endorsement of getting rid of literature altogether. Like, language cannot perform these functions. Language, you know, is engaged in this elaborate lie when we sit down and read a book about, you know, fictional people in a fictional place that aren't actually real. Um, there is a moral dimension to this that leads to the likes of metafiction writers sort of exploding fiction in its own right. Um, and while I think that's interesting as a sort of basis for an artistic movement, I do side with Gardner in saying that you got to kind of move on beyond that. Like, the richness of something like Anna Karenina isn't destroyed by the likes of Wittgenstein saying, hey, what's language for anyway? That wasn't Wittgenstein's goal. That wasn't, you know, at all what he had in mind. And we, like, there, he poses no threat to literature unless we, the writers of the time, allow him to get into our heads and prevent us from doing the work that writers do. Um, so I don't see Bradbury's fight here either, if that's in fact what he's fighting for. But I also am not sure that's exactly what's happening. As much as that's, you know, as much as it's easy to read this as Bradbury encountering Wittgenstein and responding to it, notice that the structure of the story isn't necessarily an attack on philosophy. It's an attack on, again, human hubris. You know, it, the way the story reads is much more like Kaleidoscope. All of these people are in a place that they don't belong. And as a consequence, they're finding themselves adopting these pernicious philosophical ideas. Philosophical ideas that, liter in this case, literally lead to suicide. Hitchcock venting himself out into space where, again, he is on his way to nothing, on his way from nothing to particular no, or no particular night or, and no particular morning. Um... What Bradbury is emphasizing is the horror of space here, in the same way that he was emphasizing it in Kaleidoscope. Um, so once again, we're sort of treated to Bradbury talking about hubris, in a sense. Um, and we might be able to talk about this in terms of intellectual hubris, us trying to solve these unsolvable philosophical problems. But I think it really is much more concrete, like it is in fact just sitting in front of us, i.e. this is about space. This is about what happens when you're stuck in a spaceship for too long with no connection to home or the place that you're trying to get to. Um, in the same way that we have in, you know, the Rocket Man, this, this theme of, you know, always wanting what is apart from you, here we have kind of a mirror image to it where the rocket man was always longing for home when he was in space and longing for space when he was in home, here we have Hitchcock saying, there is nothing except what is immediately in front of me. There is no home. There is no family. There is nothing but just space. And kind of losing his mind over this. Um, 
And this is not an uncommon theme in this kind of literature, especially, again, post-1950s, you know, now that we've left the likes of Heinlein behind us and all of his eager young men going off into space and doing great things kind of stories. Um, it's really easy to, to draw a line between a story like this and the likes of Cordwainer Smith's The Scanners Live in Vain. Um, this idea that space is itself actively hostile um, to the people who venture out into it. And again, this is something that Bradbury has talked about extensively. Many of the stories in this collection have this kind of theme to them, just as many of the stories in the Martian Chronicles collection were talking about hubris and the destructive capacity of humans, both for you know the places where they end up and for themselves. Um, which brings us to the city, because the city is kind of this perfect brief encapsulation of all of this. Once again, we have a story where people go where they don't belong. But if anything, here in this story, they've gone to this place that they don't belong twice. Like, the whole idea underlying the city is that there is this malevolent being, the city itself, watching as people land on the shores of this city. And the city itself is manipulating them, first to come into the city, and then once they get there, to sort of draw them into these elaborate, legitimate death traps in order to set up what turns out to be an even more elaborate death trap. Um, and I just love this top to bottom. Like, I love the tone of this sort of, like, lurking consciousness, this artificial intelligence that is the city altogether. I love the idea of a city that is itself just a giant trap. And I love the, the outcome, the fact that, you know, you have these images of, like, people just being slurped up into the city, murdered by these elaborate series of, like, blades and razors. And, you know, this is, this is Bradbury doing Poe right like, as much as I criticized Usher 2 for not letting the moments land, this is just perfectly timed in its build-up and its release. The idea that we're, we know that something is wrong. We, we do immediately sympathize with the humans who land on this planet, even as we are aligned with the malevolent monster that is about to devour them. We know that something bad is going to happen. Like, when, in fact, the, the humans are talking about, hey, maybe we should just go back to the rocket, like Smith is getting ready to bolt at any moment, and then the city very strategically releases this vapor that smells like fresh grass, and that's what draws them on. Like, we are very much like, like the, the watchers of horror movies, you know, screaming at the screen, Don't go in there! Like, you idiot! Turn back now! Um, and Bradbury just so perfectly manages to do this. Just all of the description here, all of the, the little the imagery that it involves, like it's just gorgeous and monstrous at the same time. Like even that opening line, the city waited 20,000 years. The planet moved through space and the flowers of the fields grew up and fell away and still the city waited. And the rivers of the planet rose and waned and turned to dust. Still the city waited. Um, like, we're just getting this image of, like, this lurking, like, thing biding its time. Something that we don't necessarily understand, you know, especially at this point. But then as we see it personified, as the city starts doing things, as the city observes, 
Um, as you know, we, we see Bradbury develop each of its five senses in turn. First, you know, it sees the sky, the rocket in the sky up here, and then it listens to the conversation of the people as they land. And then they start, you know, tasting and touching as people wander into the city and they like devour the captain, you know, cut him into pieces and replace him with this automaton, you know, in this way that is totally unrecognizable to the people around them. You know, there are so many different horrors that Bradbury is playing with here and, and incorporating into this story, as brief as it is. Uh, we have that lurking, malevolent thing waiting for humans to tread on its territory. We have the thing that kills quickly and mechanically, like with no compassion, just as this pure automaton, and then we get the replacement, you know, the person itself replaced not with an actual human, but with this monster that the city has sort of injected with its own personality and its own anger and, and maliciousness. You know, we have all of these kinds of horror, like these we get multiple horror tropes all incorporated into the states into this story all flawlessly incorporated like all making its own internal logical sense um of course the city would be waiting for them of course the city is you know efficiently and mechanically murdering with no remorse or or compassion and of course the city would use this technique of like implanting its own intelligence into this this person in order to make its its agenda known like this is it's just perfect like i love this story so much there's not a whole lot of theme to it like at the end of the day what the whole reason is because the city is apparently the product of the species that was wiped out by humans 20,000 years ago and has been biding its time this is the last attempt of that race to get vengeance on the people that destroyed it um and as a consequence you know, the city has waited, and twice now people have landed on this planet, walked into the city, um, people from other species, other races, other far-flung alien empires, um, and the city just ignored them. Like, it checked it out, it did all of its detection, probably even killed one of them to make sure that it was the right person, and then either killed them or let them go. Either way, the city was not interested. But now that humans have returned, the oppressors, the murderers of that species, now the city moves into action, replacing one of the human beings with itself and then replacing the rest of the crew with itself so they can load their ship with bombs, return to Earth, and destroy the society. Like, it's just fascinating to me. First, on the level that we are in the same thematic territory, the, Bradbury is once again saying, you know, humans have been somewhere they're not supposed to. But also, you know, we see a rich past here. This is not just humans have done something they're not supposed to, you know, the way that they show up on Mars and accidentally spread, you know, chicken pox to the Martian population, wiping it out, you know, in very much the same sort of thematic uh, direction and, and discussion of the destruction of the Native Americans. Um, but here we're treated to humans as a truly destructive force, as a warlike race that has killed an entire species of aliens, presumably for reasons that don't matter anymore. Like, though that's long in the past, 20,000 years ago. And yet here they are again, exploring, having forgotten that this has gotten that this went on many, many years ago, and the city responds. It retaliates. It has not forgotten. So the horror here, as much as it is, you know, 
like the mechanisms of the city, the city itself, the the you know doppelgangers that it produces. It's also a horror about humans themselves that we are so callous and so destructive and so monstrous that we don't even remember when we commit genocide against an entire alien race, that we don't recognize our own destructiveness and how painful it was to an entire people. Bradbury is sort of making the humans out to be every bit the horrific monster that the city is, in the same way that, you know, he juxtaposes the Martian civilization against the human civilization in the Martian Chronicles. But I also love the conclusion here. Um, as, you know, the city has completed its task, sent the humans off to, you know, destroy their own people, we get this great line, slowly, pleasurably, the city enjoyed the luxury of dying. Like, this idea that it's just, it's done now, and can rest, and there is peace and tranquility in this. Like, after 20,000 years of vigilance, the city finally has completed its mission. Destructive though it may be, but the act of avenging the species that has gone before. Like, every part of this, start to finish, I'm just thrilled by it every time that I read it. The pacing is brilliant, the suspense is wonderful, the monstrousness of these things. You know, I've often talked in my discussions about, well, I'm not, honestly not sure how much I've actually talked about it, I love old-school monster movies. Like, I love the, the sort of psychological dimension of monsters that get lodged in our subconsciousness. Um, like, I love the likes of Frankenstein as being this, this kind of surrogate for the discussion of science gone wrong. And I love Dracula and vampires as being this, you know, fear of indulgent, like, riches and, and an upper class that, that doesn't respect the, the classes beneath it. I love the idea of werewolves as being a sort of a way of discussing and explaining, like, violence as this inexplicable action, you know, explaining, trying to wrap our brains around why, you know, occasionally fathers go home and murder their entire families. Um, and I love zombies as this sort of expression of, of human, like, discomfort with contemporary impersonal society. Like, I'm fascinated by this. Um, and many of my favorite horror works are, are sort of examinations, ways of using these these monsters and, and creatures and things that are scary as, as metaphors, as way of exploring our own psyche and consciousness. Um, and I have always had this like secret desire to produce a monster on that level. Um, something that can stick in our minds, that, like hovers in our consciousness, serves as a way of exploring and discussing the things that make us really afraid on just a basic and universal level. Um, and this is one of my favorites. Like, this city as a kind of way of talking about, perhaps on, on the most abstract level, like corporate America just grinding us through and turning us into, you know, the surrogates for ourselves, but also, you know, with what Bradbury is actually talking about here, this idea of the city as an act of vengeance, the city as, you know, this monstrous thing that is designed to avenge the things that the humans have already done, in the same way that, like, Godzilla stands in for a sort of, you know, a sort of desire for reconciliation with nature, like, you know, the, the nuclear bomb on one hand, but also, like, nature's response to our dis 
callous destruction on the other. Um, like, this reeks of that to me. The, the idea of the monstrous city lying in wait, like, this is one of the monsters that I just love most dearly, that, that most taps into my own fears and my own concerns and my own sort of impersonal, like, frustration with the mechanisms of society. Like, I think a lot more could be done with this, and isn't. Like, Bradbury's tapped into something even he doesn't realize, and, you know, I want to explore it more, in short. Um, but I should also emphasize that this does bring up another series of thematically arranged stories that we see here in the back half of, of uh, The Illustrated Man, namely comeuppances. Um, as much as this is a story about, like, a horrific, monstrous city that is lying in wait, waiting to avenge the species that came before, it's also a story about how human hubris has gotten to the point that it is now in need of correction. Um, that humans, having destroyed this species and then forgot about it, a crime, like, truly epic in its scope, um, are now getting their just desserts, being destroyed themselves, thanks to this city's constant vigilance and, and you know, ingen ingenious design. Um, and we see several other stories that follow along with this. Um, namely, we see the visitor. Like, here we are, we've got all of these humans on Mars who are suffering because of this weird, like, Martian vapor disease thing. Like, once again, we get a Mars story, but a Mars story with a very different interpretation of Mars, like we saw with the exiles. Um, and here we have all of these people who are, like, slowly dying, the affliction of the rusted ones, as, as this one man says. Um, and then as this distraction from this affliction, this guy shows up, Leonard Mark, who apparently has this truly impressive supernatural ability to, like, psychologically or telepathically, like, reveal the images in his own mind to others. So when our main character, Saul, is lonely and sad and missing New York City, Leonard can produce New York City, surround him with New York City, um, treat him to the world that he wants to see. Um, and of course, this immediately becomes something that everybody wants, and everybody is now fighting over him, and in the fighting, Leonard is shot, and ultimately he is denied, you know, everybody is denied his presence as, you know, they were selfishly fighting over him. Um, there's very much a religious dimension here, like, I can't help but think of, you know, original sin, like, you had perfection and then you lost it because of your own pettiness, because of your own selfishness. Um, I am also seeing hints of that sort of inevitability kind of storytelling that Bradbury was using in Kaleidoscope and elsewhere, um, but I'm also seeing, again, this really important theme of comeuppances. Um, the hubris of humans is something that Bradbury is constantly talking about in his stories, um, and we see it manifest in different ways. Sometimes that hubris leads to these sorts of long, slow, you know, inevitable destructions in that kind of mythic sense, the way that we see in Kaleidoscope or in the city, um, but we also see punishment, you know, justice done in this case. Um, as much as it is totally unjust to poor Leonard here, we do see that all of this selfishness is punished with denial. 
Um, you had a chance at something better. You had, you know, Leonard here, and you could have, like, enjoyed what he, the gifts that he was offering. And he is really generous about it. At one point, he is like, yeah, I'll totally, like, give each of you an hour each week. But then they're like, no, I want two hours. Why shouldn't you be working constantly? Why should I be, you know, forced to share you? All of these sorts of ridiculous, selfish human questions, but typically human in their selfishness which ultimately leads to Leonard's demise. Um, his death is a bit of a contrivance, unfortunately, but it is the appropriate end here. It is the natural conclusion. Um, better to see him die in an accidental gunshot than wait many years of you know them torturing and functionally enslaving him in order to get what they want. Um, we also have, as one of these sorts of comeuppances and hubris stories, uh, the Marionettes Incorporated, um, where here it's, you know, a pretty straightforward doppelganger story. Like, we've seen this one many, many times since Bradbury, um, and I doubt that Bradbury's own take on this story is the earliest. I suspect that Asimov had explored this in his robot stories long before Bradbury did. Um, but here it's just the shortest, sweetest version of this story. Um, there is this company, Marionettes Incorporated, who will produce robots for you that are the exact perfect likeness of you, so you can go and have your big adventures in Rio, um, and leave your marionette at home to take care of your wife and your responsibilities. Um, but as soon as this guy does in fact get the, the marionette, we end up with these sort of two divergent versions of the story, um, which again are kind of the two really obvious takes on this. On the one hand, we have the guy who goes home to his wife hoping to, you know, produce a marionette so he doesn't have to be with her anymore, only to discover that the wife itself is, in fact, a marionette. She beat him to the punch. Um, on the other hand, the guy who wants to go to Rio comes home to find his marionette is unwilling to let go back in the box, and as a consequence, he, like, locks up the original in the box and then takes his own wife to Rio, you know, behaving better than the guy himself does. Um, and again, this is pure Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, like, if anything, the thing that I find the most fascinating about the story is the fact that Bradbury, like, bifurcates the moral. The fact that we get to see not one, but two of the, the sort of classic, you know, comeuppance endings here, insofar as we have, you know, the guy who wants to get away from his wife, it turns out that his wife has already gotten away from him, um, as well as the guy who wants to get away from his wife is himself locked in the, ch in the chest because he clearly didn't value her enough. Um, like, it, it's, it's interesting structurally from that perspective, but it is, again, like, very typical of, of this sort of story and, and this sort of approach. Um, it's been better done since, just because it's a story that has been told so many times. This business of, like, swapped identities and, you know, like, surrogates standing in for the original and fighting with your own clone or, or however we see it. Um, again, it's something that is all over the work of P.K. Dick. It is something that's all over the Twilight Zone. It's something that's all over Black Mirror. Um, you name it, you've seen this story a thousand times by now. Bradbury is just absolutely rendering it in its most bare-bones form, which I appreciate. Like, that's one of the things that Bradbury is best at. That's the kind of story that he loves to write. Um, so with that in mind, let's look at some of these that kind of don't fit in these big overarching themes, that kind of do stand alone and have their own sort of project, their own thing to say. Um, so first and foremost, I want to talk about the... the um, 
The Fox in the Forest, uh, the time travel story here, which Bradbury's time travel stories are fairly few and far between. Like, I've encountered a couple of them. Perhaps the most famous is uh, The Sound of Thunder, which is the one where, like, the guy steps on the butterfly in the prehistoric past and so radically changes the future that, like, um, it's totally unrecognizable. Um, and it sort of leads to this whole discussion of, you know, the, the unforeseen consequences, again, the hubris of humans going where they don't belong. Um, that's not what we're talking about here in The Fox in the Forest, though. This is much more a sort of spy story. Um, it's about escapes and, and people hiding from the law. Um, the premise here is that... Um, it, we have this time travel agency that basically allows you to go on vacations to the past, um, but the society of the future, which admittedly we never see, is so uh, oppressive, so totalitarian, um, that people are trying to escape into the past. Like, they're going to their assigned location in the past, but then they are, like, skipping town and, and going to places they're not supposed to go to. They're hiding out in the past um, from the, you know, the authorities of the future. Um, so we were introduced to our, our couple of characters, William Travis and his wife, um, who are in hiding in 1938 uh, in Mexico, um, and they immediately discover that there's this guy who is following them. Um, he is, you know, like tracking them, and he, he's found where they are hiding out, and he's just sort of quietly, like, watching um, watching them, you know, go about their business, and, and they realize that he's there for them, that he is there to get them. Um, so on the one hand, they're very civil about it, because again, it's time travel. Like, you don't have to worry about how long it takes, because you can always just travel back to 30 seconds after they left in the first place, no harm, no foul. Um, but at the same time, there's this menace about it, and Travis trying to, like, elude this pursuer, um, only to discover, at long last, when they actually, like, kill him, they run him over with a car, um, that there were, in fact, two groups sent. Um, and in fact, this is the policy of the organization. On the one hand, they send the one person to track them down and bring them in, but they also send a group. Um, and if the one doesn't work, the other always does. So this group of travelers who are trying to incorporate them into this, this movie that they're shooting down in Mexico apparently turns out to also be an organization um, from the, the sort of people who run the vacations. Um, and as a consequence, they're the ones that ultimately take them in after they murder the, the sort of lone wolf who was tracking them down. Um, and honestly, like, there's not a whole lot to, to read into this story. This one seems to me to be more fun than anything. Um, it is, again, a sort of perfect example of what it is. It's Bradbury doing a spy story, but a spy story that takes place across space and time. Um, but at the same time, as rich as this idea is, Bradbury doesn't explore it in very much detail. It's just a setting. Um, it's just the background for, you know, the interactions between these characters, the psychological games between the hunter and the hunted. Um, what is kind of a neat trick, though, is the way that the future is portrayed here. The fact that all of these people are escaping into the past because the future is so bleak and so miserable. Um, Travis himself is apparently this, like, key figure in the development of this new weapon for some impending war that is going to take place. 
like Bradbury seems to be suggesting here that, you know, our nostalgia for the past is something that we're keen to escape into, that the present is so awful, this present, you know, with all of its threats of war and its, like, destructive designs and its bleak outlook is something that people want to seek out nostalgia to get. Um, and, and as one of the things that it sort of keeps coming up in this story is that the travelers from the future are always recognizable because they are guzzling booze and smoking cigarettes and getting a wide variety of experiences because they aren't available. Um, in the so-called present, in the far-flung future that these people originally belong to. They've come to 1938 because it's so much better than their, you know, distant 2000s future, which, with all of its rationing and all of its restrictions. Um, and I find that interesting as well. Um, the idea that, that Bradbury is, you know, giving us a, a vision of the future that is, you know, not exciting. You know, so many of Bradbury's stories about the future are, if like, perhaps horrifying, perhaps ind indicative of our hubris, but usually exotic in some way. You know, only in Fahrenheit 451 and, and here in, in this story and, you know, maybe in a couple of the other stories we've encountered, do we see the future as being even more banal than the present, even more bleak than the present. Um, the idea that, you know, Bradbury, as much as he loves his stories of adventure and imagination, is also very willing to see that that could all go terribly, terribly wrong. That, in fact, the world might not be adventuring off into space, but in fact just engaged in its own even worse petty squabbles. Which is sort of emphasized by the, the like, ending here. The, you know, the, the authorities in 1938 find this apartment where this abduction has taken place and all that they find because everybody else has escaped back in back to the future um is 67 bottles of wine and 106 cartons of cigarettes and you know everybody is just indulging while they're here even the authorities even the cops who are like sweeping through the past in order to find these fugitives they are indulging in all of these delights while they're there all of these forbidden things that they otherwise don't have access to um one of the other stories that i'm reminded of i don't remember whose it is i want to say it's pk dick but i could be wrong um, there's this wonderful little concept where, like, there's this fantastic new device that allows you to suck energy from the past, um, and the future is developing these en masse so they can, like, take all of the energy that the past was producing, and yet somehow they're still, like, stuck trying to produce energy, and as a consequence, it turns out that the future is sucking energy from them as well. Um, I like this idea of the future preying on the past. Um, so often we see it kind of the other way around, like here in the present, all of our climate change discussion is, is often framed as denying the future their rights, like what are we doing to the future, what is going to happen to the generations that come after us. Um, it's kind of interesting to see that one on the other foot, as Bradbury might put it. Um, here we have a story of the past being this wondrous place that we all long for, again, sort of tapping into that nostalgia, um, but also a place that we sort of unflinchingly take advantage of, a place that, you know, we send people in order to guzzle up all their booze and to buy up all their cigarettes and to just take advantage of it while we can. 
Um, it's interesting and sort of indicative of Bradbury's own relationship with his own past, you know, his nostalgia for the years that have gone before, um, just as, you know, you see in something like Dandelion Wine, where he's kind of recreating his own childhood. Um, but again, I think this is more fun than it is deep. It's thought-provoking, but it's kind of less in the text and more what we derive from the text. By contrast, I do want to look at the Concrete Mixer, because this is more thematically rich in its own text. Um, namely, here we have kind of a similar setup, namely the Martians are now the aggressors and they're coming to invade Earth. Um, and we're being told this story from the perspective of this one character, um, Ethil, who apparently has a deep love for American science fiction. And he's been reading all of these stories about these one American heroes who managed to fight off the alien invasion and, like, secure the world for humanity once again in true, like, Battlefield Earth or true pulp fashion. And that Hill is like, we shouldn't invade Earth because they'll totally, like, send out their Rick or their Dick or their whoever is, whatever his name is with the Irish last name, who's going to, like, wreck us and we have no chance against them. They, they believe this down to their core. Um... But weirdly enough, when in fact the Martian invasion of Earth takes place, they get something completely unexpected. Namely, the Earthicans welcome them with open arms. Come! Come to our city. Take over our world. We gladly surrender to you. And then they're making movies about the Martians, and girls are walking off with the Martians, and they're like going to the movies with them. And what... Bradbury is very much emphasizing here the sort of horror that Etiel recognizes is that the great danger of humans is not their warfare or their capacity to destroy, it is their society, their capitalism, the commercialism, the intoxicating temptations of, you know, American society. That's what ultimately destroys the Martians. The danger that is presented here is not that the Martians will be killed or destroyed or their culture, you know, wiped out, but that it will be assimilated into this banality of human culture, of, you know, trying to buy their pretty human girls fancy things and taking them out to totally, you know, obnoxious and meaningless movies and, you know, making money for the sake of making money. Like, the big final climactic reveal... You know, Etiel is, is having a conversation with this one, you know, human who is trying to convince him to, like, be, be a, uh, like, a, a, an actor in this movie that he is making. And ultimately he asks the question, so what is your name? And finally the guy says, Rick, Richard Robert. And Etiel's like, you're Rick! You're the guy! You're the one who I've been reading about. You know, not that you're going around shooting Martians, beating them off with a stick, but rather you are assimilating them. You are convincing them to fund your projects. The danger here is not that you're going to destroy Mars, but you're going to turn it into Los Angeles. Um, you're going to just raise a bunch of movie theaters and fast food restaurants and, you know, encourage us to just, like, ignore all of our great accomplishments and instead just spend our lives, you know, trying to get girls to go out with us. Um, and I want to sort of poke at this a little bit, because on the one hand, I find this hilarious. Like, this is absolutely, you know, all of the social commentary that we saw in Fahrenheit 451 being applied, you know, very much in a sort of unexpected and, and kind of frivolous way. But on the other hand, I also find this story a bit troubling. Um, like, here we are presented with, you know, the, the corrupting influence of American society. Um, and especially the corrupting influence of American society on an otherwise fairly stoic and warlike race. You know, we're reading this as the 
sort of uh, like I, I my historical leanings can't help but think of like Rome um, and the Roman Empire because this absolutely smacks of the likes of Tacitus um, writing about how Rome has grown decadent um, in its old age and it no longer has the the former military values that it used to have and that we need to get back to some age where you know men were men and men were virtuous and they they practiced you know good stoic values and they they performed their duty for the state and for the society with no thought of the consequences to themselves and on the one hand the fact that it sounds like this that you know Bradbury like Tacitus is saying look at how destructive human society actually is you know that rubs me a little the wrong way like that rubs me a little like propaganda like this whole society that we built like I, I admit I agree with Bradbury that it is decadent that it is you know excessive in its love of commercialism and in, in its banality um, you know all these people just looking to make a buck and, and trying to convince everybody else to do the same you know here are the Martians convinced they're going to take over the earth and you know use it for the glory of the Martian race and now they're being convinced to just buy starter homes and you know like go, get jobs and seek the American dream. Um, Bradbury is kind of suggesting that that American dream is not worthwhile, which as much as there are a lot of problems with the American dream, as much as I agree that it isn't worthwhile, he is kind of prioritizing the Martian lifestyle over it by, by consequence. Um, and that I find a little troubling. Like, not, I don't think that he's giving it that much thought here. I think, again, he's just running another one of his, like, typical throw an idea at the wall, see if it sticks kind of stories. You know, the sort of thing that you toss off after, like, a couple of hours, maybe revising once or twice and then calling it a day. Um, but at the same time, like, the, the mechanics here seem to be almost fascist in nature. Like, this is a story that supports a fascist militaristic regime over and against the dangers posed by commercialism and capitalism. Like, don't get me wrong, capitalism is not a great thing, but the alternative that we're seeing here is also not great. Like, Etiel himself kind of is presented as this sort of fascinating bridge character, because he's not a true Martian, but he's also not a true human. Like, he respects human art and literature, he admires their stories, he like, wants to become more familiar with their culture, um, and he is forced into a situation by a militaristic Mars. But at the same time, he is, you know, inundated with human culture and finds the danger presented there as well. So I think Bradbury is honestly, like, as much as some of the text seems to be suggesting, you know, militarism over commercialism, at the end of the day, I think he's more clever than that. I think Atil, as our sort of intermediary character, is giving us a third option. Namely, neither of these are good. And what Bradbury is kind of showing us is that soft power beats hard power every time. That's the real moral here. He's not making some normative claim or, you know, talking about the, the potential heroism of the Martians. Instead, he's kind of stressing that presented with a fascist dictatorship and a commercial, you know, enterprise, you know, the same conflict that he himself sees growing up around him as the Cold War is getting underway, he recognizes that the fascists don't have any chance here. Like, you can't, the Soviets are not going to beat 
the Americans. Like, this is a frank admission on Bradbury's part. America is going to win. The question is, should it? Both of these philosophies, both of these societies are wrong, and Bradbury seems to be pretty clearly emphasizing that. The conformist, commercialized world of the American 1950s is a pretty bad society, but it is inevitably going to win over the sort of militarism that the, the communists, at least in Bradbury's day, would have represented. What Bradbury seems to be saying, though, is he wants there to be a third option. You know, like Montag and Clarice in Fahrenheit 451, there should be a space for people to just read books and enjoy, you know, life as it is, and not feel either the pressure to run the rat race, make their buck, buy their home, you know, like, get married, have 2.5 kids and a dog and a cat and so on and so forth, and just live that way until they die. Um, that, too, is a bad option. A better option than fascism, and an option that will certainly overcome fascism because it is just so dang enticing to so many people, because that temptation is so great, but that just makes it all the more dangerous, I think. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, again, sure that there's supposed, that Bradbury is giving this story this much thought, but at the very least, it is sort of interesting as this, you know, examination of the Cold War from a third person's perspective, as well as a condemnation of American faults in its own time, um, though we might be led to think that that condemnation is itself kind of pernicious in its own right. Um, anyway... Yeah, it's fascinating, and I, I found myself thinking about it quite a bit, found myself troubled by it quite a bit, um, but probably more due to the fact that I'm not living in Bradbury's time, seeing the false dichotomy that he is being presented with this Cold War attitude and this, you know, fight of capitalists versus communists as the sort of central moral dilemma of their time. Um, moving on, though, we are presented with Zero Hour, which honestly probably has the greatest kinship with the Velt as being a story about, hey, what are the kids doing, and it being actually kind of terrifying. Um, here in Zero Hour, we are treated to another Martian invasion of Earth, you know, right on the heels of the Concrete Mixer, um, but where the Concrete Mixer is kind of about, like, the failure of Martian society to integrate humans because human society is just so damn resilient. Um, here we have a Martian invasion of Earth that is conducted by the children of Earth. Um, that the Martians apparently exist in some alternative dimension, and they are, like, contracting the kids to build some device that will allow them to travel to Earth. Um, and they are doing this with the kids as, as they put it, the fifth column, i.e. the part of the enemy ranks that they've sort of turned over to their own side. Um, and the genius of this is the fact that nobody pays attention to the kids. Like, for all of the adults in this story, the kids are just playing this weird game about Martian invaders. Um, they're listening to this guy called Drill, who is apparently this common imaginary friend of theirs. Um, and the adults, they're treated to all the information they need to put all the pieces together. Like, we, the readers, can clearly see, even though the story is written from the adult perspective, um, that the kids are, in fact, organized, that they are, in fact, doing something unusual. But the parents refuse to acknowledge it. Um, and in some level, 
it's kind of obvious that the parents do know what's going on. Like, when in fact they are holed up in the attic, hiding from whatever these Martian invaders actually are, you know, right before they melt the door and, like, burst in and the story ends in that sort of, like, climactic, you know, again, comeuppance or, or ironic twist, um, we get the sense that, yeah, they knew and refused to acknowledge it. And on both counts, I think that Bradbury has something really interesting here. Um, like in the Velt, the idea that the kids are, you know, up to something and we're not, you know, we should be paying more attention to what that actually is. I couldn't agree more on that front. Like, I, I you know, I, I think that, like, the, the ignorance of children's projects is kind of ridiculous. Like, I imagine that Bradbury, you know, is not at all calling for the sort of helicopter parenting and, you know, PTA self-involvement that leads to science fiction novels being banned and, you know, kids, like, reading horror or in, inappropriate material without, you know, parental supervision or guidance. I don't think that's what he's going for at all here. Um, but I do like the idea that Bradbury is in touch with that rich inner world that childhood provides, that he sees that there is true weight and meaning for what kids are doing to themselves as well as in greater consequences. The games that kids play will decide the future in some respect. But on the other hand, I think it's also kind of interesting to read it from the perspective that the parents do know what's going on and are sort of deliberately refusing to acknowledge it, that they're denying the truth of this to themselves. Uh, like, both of these approaches are very true to form. They're both things that Bradbury is interested in. Again, we've seen this sort of self-denial of the horror of our society in Fahrenheit 451, um, as well as the denial of, you know, watching the children become spoiled in the veldt. Um, I think it's interesting to see that play out here in its sort of like, again, Twilight Zone-ish conclusion. The idea that the kids are in fact actively involved in an alien invasion, that the parents' lack of interest in their kids' lives has literally led to the end of human society as we know it. Um, but also I kind of love the kids' win in this situation. Like, the aliens bribe them with candy and, you know, typically kid things. Um, like, there's just something very delightful about seeing the... the alien invasion play out here and the children being complicit with it because you know kids are kids and they're kind of unaware of, of the implications of their actions um, it's just you know it's another one of those where I suspect that if you read too deeply you're, you're missing the point like this is just a fun thought experiment um, but at the same time like I, I think Bradbury is really like as we'll see elsewhere Bradbury is very attentive to children he is very attentive to their experiences, he is very attentive to their lifestyle, he is very attentive to their flights of fancy. Um, you have to imagine that Bradbury himself was a very imaginative kid at one point and has never lost that, and in fact continues to admire that to this day. Um, and we'll see this again. Like, once we start reading Something Wicked This Way Comes for next time, obviously this is a story that is focused on the adventures of children and very much sort of like a dark reimagining of Bradbury's own childhood, um, which I'm, again, super eager to get back to. It's been a long time since I've read Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, so all that to say, like, Zero Hour is another one of these sort of fun stories, especially talking about childhood, especially talking about, you know, parental neglect of children's adventures and, and, uh, and doings, um, and the consequences being almost absurdly overblown, but, you know, imaginative nonetheless. 
Um, but the last story in the collection is, in fact, one of my favorites. Um, it's one that I think about quite a bit. Like, just, it's a perfect capstone to everything that's gone before. Um, obviously, most of these stories have that kind of Bradburyan dark turn to them. Like, we've talked about comeuppances, about the inevitability of many of these stories, you know, human hubris getting the better of them, as, you know, both in the sense of, like, humans refusing to acknowledge what their kids are doing and developing zero hour, or, you know, failing to account for the sins of their past and being destroyed, like, in the city, um, or, you know, like, going to places that they don't belong, like in Kaleidoscope or The Long Rain. Um, like, we have obviously get a lot of these kind of negative stories, stories that are, you know, ha have a disappointing or horrifying or, or dark or ominous ending to them. Um, and yet here we get what is perhaps the single most obviously upbeat story in the entire collection. Um, Fiorello Bodoni is a junk dealer who has saved his pennies after many years of setbacks and failures and, you know, being overlooked and passed over, and now he has saved up $3,000 and can afford to send one and only one member of his family on a trip in a rocket, something that he and his entire family have been looking forward to for years. Um, but importantly, this is something that only rich people can do. It's going to be a huge overextension on Bodoni's part um, to be able to send this one member of his family into space. And then we end up with the central dilemma. Okay, so who goes into space? Um, and we get this scene where each member of the family, they draw straws, but each time somebody wins, they actually turn down the option. So first they draw straws, and then mom wins, and then it turns out the mom is pregnant, so she can't go into space. And this, you have to suspect, isn't entirely true. That she is, in fact, giving up her spot for the sake of the family. Especially because they draw straws again, and then the one kid wins, and he also says, Oh, I can't, I have to do my schoolwork, I guess you'd better draw again. So, once again... Bodoni realizes that he can't, in fact, send just one member of his family into space. Like, whoever it is, as Bramante tells him, you know, they will be the object of envy. There will, it will cause a rift in the family. So Bodoni gets a different idea. Um, the next day, somebody comes to his junk dealer and sells him a full-fledged rocket. Which, you know, he's a junk dealer, this is a real find, this is a great accomplishment, but at the same time he can't use it because the rocket is made of aluminum, and his alu aluminum furnace apparently isn't working, like, he can't actually break it down, it wouldn't be profitable for him to do this. But he buys the rocket anyway, and everybody criticizes him for it, and everybody says that he's going to ruin himself for it, but Bodoni has a plan. And he loads this rocket up with car engines, like old busted car engines that at least will, in fact, run well enough to, like, cause the rocket to, like, shift and, and, and like, jump, but definitely never to take off. And then he sets up some kind of elaborate holographic projector or something that shows, like, images in the, the porthole window of the rocket. And then he takes all of his kids onto the rocket and they basically do this big elaborate stage performance. For a week, Bodoni captains his fictional rocket as it shakes and moves with all the engines running, and in the windows, they pass the moon, they get to Mars, they turn around, they fly through space, and they come safely home. And the whole thing is just a trick. They don't actually go into space, the kids do not actually get to, to 
you know, go out and do anything, but they remember it. They have the experience. And importantly, they have the experience together as an entire family. And this is why this story resonates so much. Like, all of these stories that Bradbury and has been presenting to us, all these, you know, themes that we've been talking about, all these kind of negative, like, downbeat endings, you know, they've all been very much emphasizing humans where they don't belong. Here we see humans where they do belong. Here we see what Bradbury truly does value and consider important. Like, Bradbury loves stories about science fiction, obviously. He obviously has an imaginative bent. He is amazed by the wonderful. It's something that we've seen in the Martian Chronicles. It's something that we see in Fahrenheit 451, even if a lot of that is sort of negative, like Bradbury talking about, you know, the way the wonderful has been, you know, wrecked in favor of the banal. We've seen it in many of these stories. Like, clearly Bradbury loves writing about Mars and about Venus and about space. And, you know, as much as many of these stories end badly, you can tell that Bradbury revels in the horror in the same way that he loves Edgar Allan Poe and makes him the feature of not one but two whole stories about censorship. But here we see where that fantasy, where that imagination is supposed to belong. In a sense, the rocket serves as a kind of perfect foil to the rocket man. The Rocket Man was a guy who actually lived those fantasies, and as a consequence was routinely unhappy and made his family unhappy as well. His lust for being in space means that he was never happy at home, and as a consequence he ultimately finds himself drawn back to these dangerous jobs which ultimately end in his death and the family's ultimate misery. He crashes into the sun and the family refuses to go outside because they're reminded of this tragedy. But here we see the right move. Here we see the fantasy as fantasy and only as fantasy. Bodoni doesn't go up into space. He doesn't sacrifice his entire livelihood to go into space. Heck, he doesn't sacrifice his entire livelihood to send any one of them into space because it would, as the Rocket Man shows us, ultimately destroy the family, cause it to fragment. Bodoni takes the right move. He lets the fantasy be a fantasy. And while it is real, and truly real to his children, the only reason that it's real is because the fantasy is so well executed. And this, I think, is probably the profound, real, like, finishing message here. In the same way that, like, the Martian Chronicles ends on an upbeat note with the million-year picnic, and we kind of see Bradbury say, okay, so if all of this is so miserable, if all of this has ended so badly, what is the right answer? And the right answer is family valuing each other and valuing their future as a family, as actual interpersonal relationships, not getting bogged down in these distractions and adventures and giant quests and fantastic flights and so on. If hubris is the central thing that causes people to suffer and die and, you know, end up miserable in Bradbury's stories, it's this humility of Bodoni that really stands out here. 
Now, I suspect that there's another sort of dimension to this. We could talk about racism in this story and sort of Bradbury's romanticizing of the immigrant experience. Um, this is not the only place where he does this, where he takes people with like a kind of obvious Italian or Mexican bent and sort of like romanticizing their experience. The Highway might even be an example of that in, in this collection. Um, but I'm hesitant to talk about that in part because generally the whole business of racism against Italians is kind of not a thing we can fully appreciate here in the 2020s when there are so many other worse forms of racism that we could be talking about. Um, especially since this is kind of positive racism, again, romanticizing racism, which, you know, isn't terribly far from the kind of racism that Bradbury was doing in uh, Way in the Middle of the Air with, like, the all the talk of watermelons and sort of romanticizing black experience. Um, but I, I don't want to get into it here. It's, it's something that I think is worth talking about, something that we should be attentive to. Um, but the key here is that Bradbury, you know, the most that we can say about racism is the names. Like, they are clearly an Italian family. They seem to be Catholic based on the sheer number of kids that have been produced here. Um, there is definitely some stereotyping here, but not even terribly strong stereotyping. And at the end of the day, Bradbury is romanticizing this family specifically to make a very important point, namely that family should be the priority, and a family that does make family and personal relationships the priority will thrive where other families that neglect that, like the family that just supplants human emotion for technological achievement, like in the Velt, or a family that doesn't function because the father is constantly looking to the stars, like in the Rocket Man, or a family that neglects the children in their pastimes, like in Zero Hour, or a family that just ceases to be a family. All of these men who go bravely off into space, like the guy with no family in Kaleidoscope, or the men who are crash land on Venus in the long rain, you know, all of these people end tragically where Bodoni's story ends happily. Bodoni has his priorities in order. Bodoni is willing to let a fiction be a fiction, a fantasy be a fantasy. And there's nobility in that. Now, the story collection closes not with this story, but with the epilogue, which is another classic Bradbury Twilight Zone-esque twist. Um, we come back to the overarching frame of the illustrated man and all of the patterns that have been, like, telling these stories throughout the night. And then finally, the mysterious patch on his shoulder, which supposedly will foretell the, the viewer's death, turns out to show the illustrated man himself strangling uh, the, the person who is watching. So he, you know, escapes into the night, hopefully to get a head start. The, again, this is just classic Bradbury cheese in some sense. You know, oh, it turns out the illustrated man has actually been murdering all of his victims. Like, that's pretty hardcore and, you know, a pretty good twist, but again, sort of insufficiently described and, and done what with it just being a framing device here. Um, for real, though, I think that the, the kind of capstone story here, if we are supposed to see some sort of thematic cohesion to this collection, it's in the rocket. It's in Bodoni and his, you know, his proper appreciation of fantasy, his proper delivery of fantasy to his family, and his proper relationships to the people of his family, prioritizing the humanity of these people before their accomplishments, before their their pride and their their grand designs and, and projects. Um, but again, it is a collection. 
And I don't have a whole lot of negative things to say about any of these stories, much as I have been a little down on a few of them. Like, there are definitely weak spots in the collection, but overall, you know, I find all of these stories, at the very least, interesting and engaging and challenging. Um, I like Bradbury's style of, you know, building tension and, you know, dropping those, those big twist endings or ironic reversals or, you know, appropriate comeuppances. Um... Bradbury was a regular writer of things like Twilight Zone episodes, and he is truly a master of it. Um, he was kind of like the, the you know, prodigy of his day in that sense. Um, and I am, I am glad that we got to talk about some of these short stories, to sort of let them be, to let them stand on their own. Uh, much as that does reduce our effectiveness in actually being able, being able to talk about each one individually. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Like, again, this is hardly scratching the surface. The Illustrated Man is probably one of his best collections. Um, but there are so many other good stories. You know, stories about Venus, like All Summer and a Day, or stories about, you know, the prospective future and his sort of prophesizing what's going to happen, like in The Murderer. Um, you know, like, there are so many interesting stories of Bradbury's and it's a shame that we only get to tackle these these couple these eighteen instead of you know really looking at the this whole scope of his work. Um, if I were in fact to do a class on Bradbury, you bet that I'd be pulling from a lot of different collections and, and very much cherry picking what I what I wanted to include. And maybe one day we'll do that. Maybe one day we'll, I'll like get all my short story collections and you know sift through and find the the nuggets of gold that I've found in, in past readings, or you know dig up more gold in, in future readings. But, at the very least, I, I feel safe talking about The Illustrated Man. Um, I, I don't feel like there, there's a bad story in the, in the lot, um, as much as some of them are, in fact, a little problematic. Um, but now we are turning our attention again. Um, it's finally time to leave Bradbury in 1949 to 1951, and to talk about the future of Bradbury. Um, this is certainly his, his sort of, like, miracle years, like the years that he produced the Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, and the stories of the illustrated man. Um, the, these are definitely some of his strongest works. Um, but I'm eager to see his development as we go further. So next time we are moving a decade into the future, we're going to look at Bradbury in the 1960s, and we're going to read his spooky horror haunted house story about haunted carnivals, childhood, mortality, and parenting in something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, so for our first reading, we are going to read literally half of the book. Um, we're going to get to, I forget what chapter it is, I think it's chapter 30. Um, or no, chapter 31. There is this great little interim chapter where literally the entire chapter just says nothing much else happened all the rest of that night. Um, so we're going to read the first 150 pages, um, get to 154 and chapter 31. Um, and then we will read the second half for the time after that. Um, so again, the first 30 chapters of Something Wicked This Way comes for our next discussion. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. 
And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.